The Perfect Ten with Steve Allen, voice of the NRL and six-time Radio Award winner. Yeah, welcome to part three with Big Dave Fairley, former North Sydney, Newcastle, New South Wales and Kangaroos forward and the 1994 Rothmans medal winner for Player of the Year in the National Rugby League. For this episode, we've thrown the format out the window. We just had too much great material for it to hit the cutting room floor. And The Perfect Ten brought to you by our new naming rights partner, Robson Civil Projects, a third-generation company who were proud to have helped deliver the magnificent light rail for the people of Newcastle. It included an incredible 200,000 personnel hours. If it's civil construction you're after, look to the team that was founded over 50 years ago and a name you can trust, Robson Civil. Since recording the interview with Dave Fairley, I've come to realise he's probably one of the most underrated forwards in the modern era, which is hard to fathom considering he played 15 times for Australia. Here's Paul Sculthorpe, a St Helens legend, former Great Britain captain and two-time man of steel, naming his best 1-13. Second prop, I've gone for David Fairley. Um, this might surprise a few people. Uh, it won't surprise the, the Saints fans. You know, we only had one year with, with Dave uh, in 2001. Uh, this guy made a massive impact on me as a, as a player. How to be, you know, the ultimate professional. Um, you know, everything he did was was to be the best out on, on the field and um, a phenomenal player. You know, one of the one of the first props. You know, really to uh, to use a ball and uh, you know had so much skill, but you know could run over people as well and, and certainly whack on on defence. But you know, for me, it was it was more the, the attitude thing and and the the impact he had on his on his teammates as well. You know, phenomenal player. That is Paul Sculthorpe naming Dave Fairley in the front row in his best 1-13 to and it speaks volumes about the player Dave Fairley was and the huge impact he had in just one season in the UK Super League. So let's get cracking. This episode Dave talks about his coaching career with five different clubs and the coaches in world sport that he admires. He elaborates on the scariest moment of his life during the Townsville floods and the gesture by the North Queensland Cowboys team that brought him to tears. But we commence part three with Dave naming his best 17 that he played with or against. Fullback, I would have to say uh, Billy Slater. Do you just want me to keep going? Keep going, my friend. On one wing, I'd say um, Michael Hancock. The other wing, I will say Andrew Eddinghausen. In the centres, I will have Mal Meninga and Gene Miles. 5'8 will be Wally Lewis. Halfback will be Alan Langer. Lock will be Bradley Clyde. Second rowers will be... That's a really hard one. There's a lot of really, really good second rowers. Probably go... Are we allowed to say England? Yeah, absolutely. With or against. Yeah, so I'll say um, I'll say Paul Siren and Gareth Ellis. So two Balmain Tiger players there. Front row uh, will be uh, Steve Roach, Benny Elias and, um, and Arthur Beetson. Who's coming off the bench? Coming off the bench, I think you need... Well, there's guys in there that missed out that you could go, you know, I think Steve Walders, Glenn Lazarus, Steve Rogers, what a player, Greg Alexander. There's four guys there. Yeah, Greg Alexander, what a player. Wow. I remember someone said, who's the hardest player you've ever had to tackle? And it was Greg Alexander because it's not the big, the big massive guy that's running straight at you. It's like, mate, that's easy. Run at me. You know, I'll hit you. But like Brandy was just so quick and nimble and f- like fast and um, you know I've left Freddie out left Joey out like we could probably name three Steve you know 
Yeah, uh, was that an oversight? Yeah. No, Joey. Yeah, no, not really. Like Joey's mate, he's an immortal. He's 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 one of the greatest players ever. But you know, and I played with him, I coached him, but I loved Alfie, and I love Joey too. So, no, Alfie, to me, Alfie deserves to be an immortal, in my opinion, and so does Mal Meninga. Absolutely. You always wanted to be a coach. And now, reflecting on it, you've spent two decades at five different clubs. Give us your thoughts on your proud record as an assistant coach. Yeah, it's been a great, great ride journey. I think you know what I what I really enjoy about the game now is um, so I spent I think I have five years at the Knights, three years at Para, two two years at New Zealand, four years at Penrith, and then um, three seasons at, at the Cowboys. So, what I really like is I can go to any game with any team and there's someone there that I know and I'm really proud to be able to say that um, as a player and a coach now I've been involved at NRL now for 33 years so lucky enough to go to three grand finals um, as an assistant coach uh, didn't win one but they're hard to win and just to make it you play your part on rugby league's biggest night yeah I think one of the I look back and um 2011 when I was at the Warriors and we got all three grades into the grand final uh, under 20s um, the reserve grade New South Wales Cup team and the first grade team yeah we went down to Manly on that day but um, assistant coaches is a funny one and and, yeah it's a lot of luck involved there's timing there's people you know I've been down to the last two on three occasions and every time I haven't got the head coaching position is because I haven't got the experience and I'm like well how do you get the experience if you can't get the job? You know, and can you say what clubs they are? Oh well, no, I won't go that the end of that. But um, and, and what would you have done differently to the head coaches you were under? Well, you don't really. So it's hard one to answer right now, Steve, because there's a lot of things involved in coaching. You know, you, first of all, you you've got to work out the team that you have. Are they the team that you want? Then, so if they're not, well, then you've got to, you know, manage the salary cap, and you've got to move players on. You've got to bring players in. You've got to create a culture because there's obviously one already there. You may like it, you may not like it. So coaching is so much more about just, just the actual game plans and things like. That. It's actually way more than that. And I guess the best, the best summary I've heard of coaching, and it's no it's surprises probably from Wayne, it's from Wayne Bennett, who won seven grand finals, is that he's simple. Uh, philosophy on coaching is keep the players happy and if you can do that there's a whole f- that comes under a whole umbrella of things about keeping the players happy it's not, it doesn't mean you turn up the train and let's put the party hats on this I mean there's a lot of things you've got to do to keep the players happy but essentially if you do that and um, treat them with respect and show, show some genuine care they will deliver and they will put out and keep things nice and simple and they will execute and be consistent. And if, if you can do that, you know, you're going to have a pretty good team. I know you love basketball, but who are the coaches in world sport that you admire? Oh, I think think top of the list, first thing comes off is uh, Bill Belichick. So served a massive apprenticeship. So two guys I really like is um, Bill Parcells. And I quite often show this to to people when I'm doing presentations, but there's a, there's a section in Bill Parcells' Hall of Fame acceptance speech when he gets um, in Canton, Ohio as a head coach. He won two Super Bowls with the Giants and he talks about giving to the greater good in the team. And I would recommend anybody um, to get on YouTube and have a look at that. There's a little section there that goes for about seven minutes and that's that's one of the best speeches. And every time 
it's only an excerpt of a bigger speech, but every time I look at it, I get something different out of it. Bill Belichick, I just love his philosophy and I love how people go to his club and they become better. And that's that's not because of him. That's because of the standards that, and led by Tom Brady, who now you know, subsequently gone to Tampa, but but he you know he he's earned that right. He's but he's so Tom Brady. If if his his whole attitude with the Patriots was, if if what you do. So when you come to the Patriots, if if what you do is more important than what this football team is trying to achieve, then get out of here because you're not going to fit in. And Bill Belichick, so his three things, he had three things. You come to the Patriots, you either get better, you help someone else get better, or you do something to help this football team. Other than those three things, I don't care what you do, but they are the three things. If you're a Patriot, that's what you do. And that's not to say you don't have fun and you can't get on with the coach and have a laugh and a giggle and all that stuff, because that's, that's all important too. But what it's saying is that when you go to this club, there is an expectation that you deliver and you do everything you can to be the best player you can. And you know, that's why I just love love reading about him. I love, I love listening to his, his um, him talk, you know, speeches. Um, and, and the other one is, is probably lesser known as Bill Parcells. You uh, spent some time working with a college in America and that helped you land your new role. Tell us more. Yeah, so I was doing some work with a bloke called Eric Magnum and he's from the um, University of Georgia doing a PhD in emotional intelligence. Um, and look, it's, it's, I'm not going to say it's a new thing, but it's, it's a thing that I felt that I naturally, I, I have a, a good feel about how people are feeling and how to treat people. And, and really it's about um, how to get the best out in people, how to speak to people, how to get a team. And yeah, so I've been doing a fair bit of work with Eric and through that I've managed to sort of put my own spin on it, my own philosophy and how I feel that emotional intelligence can can help create a team and a club and a winning culture and, you know, nobody in the team is more important than anybody else and, you know, as to quote Bill Parcells, you know, you're giving to the greater good, you've got to be willing to pay the price and if you are, well, come on in. If you're not, get the hell out. That's what he says. And... Um, so yeah, look, I I went for this this role, this new challenge with the referees, and I just put together a piece on emotional intelligence and how I felt that I could help the referees in the broader NRL. And I think it must have hit a tune with somebody because they rang me 24 hours later and said I got the job. So you know, I would encourage any any young coach. The first thing you got to do is you, you got to be yourself. You can't you can't be anybody else. So what your strengths are is get better at your strengths but learn ways on how to relate to people and and I felt that learning more about emotional intelligence helped me be able to have better conversations more real conversations with people in the team in the club and that did not have to be about football that could be about anything so it it just makes you be able to communicate better and then if players feel like you care they'll, they'll do anything for you when you're in Townsville, you quoted recently as saying you had the scariest moment of your life. Uh, can you elaborate on that for us? Yeah, wow. Take me back to the floods. So I don't think anyone in New South Wales really could comprehend how big and and severe they were. So we just happened to get a lot of rain. And at that time, Townsville was in a massive drought. Uh, the dam was at 12%. 
So there's a real reluctance to start letting water out of the dam because if the rain stopped, then they're going, well, why'd you let the water out of the dam? We didn't have any in the first place. So, but it didn't stop. It kept raining and raining and raining. Then they thought, well, we better start letting some water out of the dam here because there was actually more water going into the catchment than what they could let out. So by then it was too late. So that in conjunction with the tides, I can I can remember I was standing out the backyard with my son and I saw the river break its bank and a, like a tsunami coming towards our house. And within within three minutes, the street was up to my waist. For about three days, the water sort of hovered around about halfway up our driveway and then on the fourth day the army came up <laughs> how often you said tank drive up your street but a tank came up the street and they were just getting off and they were just saying uh, this is an order evacuation order we're not asking you we're telling you you have to leave you this is going to flood imminent danger flooding so right okay so we grabbed um i said to uh, shana and the kids i said right anything worth any money which took us about five seconds <laughs> no we anything worth anything anything valuable put it up as high as you can in the in the wardrobes Maxie and i we went out we got all the animals we got them all together so in boxes and crates and carry cages uh i said everyone grab a suitcase on what you need and we've got to get out of here and we went to the front door and I reckon from the time the guy said it's time to evacuate to we got the front door was 15 minutes and we couldn't move the the by then the water was at the front door people were going down the streets in massive four-wheel drives and there was no way like I we had two like normal little family cars and I wasn't even going to risk like I've just heard so many bad stories about people driving cars in floods and I just said we're staying so we stayed one of the big hazards crocodiles become a massive problem because once the river breaks to the banks the crocodiles can go wherever they want so that was about four o'clock in the afternoon and we rang triple o the army knew we were there but there was tens of thousands of people that had to get rescued so it's like you just you just got to ride it out so we had our neighbor with us who was badly injured an old bloke had badly cut his knee had all his stuff so about four in the morning, so we're sitting on the kitchen table on top of about four mattresses. I had a ladder ready to go onto the roof if we had to. And I heard, by this stage, it was dead quiet. Everyone's phones were dead. The torches were dead. There was no power. And I just heard this engine coming up the street. And silly, but, you know, you're desperate. And I waded out to the letterbox, and it was up to about my chest. And I said, mate, we're in here. We've got our family, the neighbour. I said, we're, we're, we, you know, we need help. And he didn't even stop. He just said, I'll be back in an hour. And I come back in and I just said, he said he'd be back in an hour. And we just sat there. And about an hour later, you could just hear this engine just ever so faintly just getting louder and louder and louder. He actually came to our house, drove straight in through the double doors into the lounge room and we just piled off and all jumped into the boat and it was so severely overloaded i said i'll stay here with the neighbor you can come back and get us he said no he said we are we are all going now he said mate this is too dangerous and i could see the fear in the driver's eyes i was scared my whole family i was at the point where i was just about to say if we tip or something bad happens, you, you need to let go of the animals, you need to let go of everything that's in your hand, let the current take you and just grab onto something high and stay there and help will come. And 
I was I was two seconds off saying that. I didn't want to say it because I was they were that scared. So I held it in, and I just hoped that we got to we got to high ground safely, which we barely barely did. You now I can't explain to you how terrifying it was. Like when you, I don't know if anyone has ever been in a situation where you you are actually in a situation and you know you've still got 30 minutes to go to get to high ground and and you're thinking to yourself i could die here someone in my family could actually die here in the next half an hour and to go through that that situation was just mate i'll I'll never forget it um yeah i I still get a bit yeah i'm not surprised you you made the national news you viewed as a hero as well through that period. Yeah, I mean, I still get a little bit emotional, but um, we got through it. Uh, yeah, well, um, we survived, and then you know, we spent a couple of days at the army barracks. And um, you know, one one of the best things that happened was like the aftermath. So we had to go back, and you got to you got to go back to your house eventually. So it was like. You know, three or four days later, you know, you go in and you just open your house up and you just look at it and it's just, you know, there's honestly 10 centimetres of mud over everything and you just think, where do you start? What do you do? And so you lost everything? Everything. So um, we're one of the best examples of leadership um, I've ever seen. So I come into the house that day. It was about four days after the flood. And I was just so overwhelmed with, like, where do you start? What what do you do here? You're just looking at, you know, we were talking about the Rothmans medal. And I went to the drawer where the Rothmans medal was, and it was just black and covered in mud. And if I didn't know where it was, it would have just gone missing. So I'm standing there, and next minute I heard about five utes pull up in the front driveway, and it was just all the players and that's incredible so the cowboys are at the front of your house you all right buddy wow um i had um, a good relationship with all the players you know so some of them themselves, you know, poor old Jakey Granville, the trainer, you know, they lost everything. One of the assistant coaches lost everything. But I'm standing there and I'm just thinking, you know, what do I do? And then next minute, um, you know, Josh McGuire and, and, you know, I could go through the names. You know, Josh, what a, such a wonderful person. Turned up and they said, righto, Daisy, what, what are we going to do? And I just said, boys, every single thing you see in this house has to go on the front lawn. And there would have been, I reckon, 15, 15 players, and they just ripped in, and the whole, the whole thing was done in two hours. And I remember Mitch Dunn, a young kid coming through, a terrific kid. He's actually got a broom, and he's sweeping, <laughs> he's sweeping the um, the kitchen floor. And I said, Dunny. You've done enough. Like I don't know if sweeping the floor is going to really do too much now. So. You know, I'm standing there and then I'm overwhelmed. I just didn't know what to do. The next minute, they just said, they just walked in the front door and just said, what do you want done? There was no talking. Everyone just ripped in, 
got the job done, went from my house, got all my work done, and then they went and saw you know, Jake Granville or the next house or the next person that needed help. What an organisation. Yeah. And is that why people travel 10 to 12 hours to watch them play? Yeah, they, it's a tremendous club. Um, got some tremendous people there. Peter Parr, uh, he, he does a wonderful job for the club. He coordinated all of the... Um, all of that sort of relief work. When we when we had nowhere to stay and was staying at the army barracks, it was Peter Parr who got us out of the army barracks into his house, into a hotel. Dave, you mentioned Maxi. Possibly the final question. He's on the on the pathway. Uh, will we see him in the NRL at some stage? I know we don't want to put pressure on the young man, but he's obviously talented. He played in far north Queensland, and now. He's back on the central coast of New South Wales. Yeah, that's uh, that's a good question, Steve. Look, he, he would definitely get no pressure from me. I would love to see him play in the NRL. I was having this conversation with Joey um, yesterday. So he's got a 17-year-old son as well. And he just said, you know what, Lewis, if you're serious about footy and you want me to show you some things, he said, mate, I'll show you. He said, but in the meantime, go and play AFL, go and play soccer, go and play with your mates, go and have fun. because, And then... If you want it, that's about the age, 16 to 17, where you you show those signs of, of personal dedication and commitment. And if you can get up and train when nobody else is training or get up and train hard um, when you don't want to, they're the first signs that are encouraging that you want to you make it. So Max, he's got, a, he's got a great attitude and that goes a long way. But obviously... Yeah, it's a tough road. I think every every three kids that play SG ball, sorry, every hundred kids that play SG ball, three kids might play first grade. So, but one thing I know with Max is that it won't be through lack of trying or determination. Who's the best friend you ever had in the game? Um, that's a good question. There's a lot of you know, I mentioned earlier about being in the game for so long, so I can go to any game anywhere. There's a coach I know, there's an administrator I know, there's a player I know, there's a there's a referee I know. So that's the great thing about the rugby league fraternity. And that's not just NRL. That's like Arimba, Gosford, the entrance, Tookley, Wyong. You know, I, I just, you know, I've been around for so long. I know so many wonderful people. That's why the, the Men of League Foundation is such a, a, great, a great thing. But I guess the guy that I, I probably have kept in closest contact with over, over my entire football life is um, a bloke called Tony Ray who when I first came into first grade was our captain and 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 he was a great leader to me um, uh, advice inspiration steady head he'd won a comp for brothers in Brisbane which a lot of players we talked about that earlier so a lot of players from his team went to the Dragons you know Mark Coyne and players like that so Tony was there, he was our hooker, he was our captain, and all of a sudden, you know, we sign Mario Fennick comes into the team, and then um, Jason Taylor comes into the team. And so uh, the foundations of, of our standards of training and the standards that we accepted as a team and individuals were brought about by, um, from Tony. There's no doubt about that. So if I said the words rugby league, what does it mean to Dave Fairley? Oh, greatest game of all my life, um, yeah, what a sport. Great people, many friendships. You know, the list goes on. GOT, it's been a pleasure having you on The Perfect yeah. Ten. Any, anything else you'd like to say before we wrap up? No, it's been a pleasure, Steve. It's, it's, nice. it's, great. it's great to talk footy. I love to talk footy 
with people who love to talk footy and you are one of those people and uh, mate really proud of you too because um yeah, whenever I see you on um, at the Origin or the Grand Finals or ANZ Stadium, and yeah, I always say I know that guy, Steve Allen, and um, mate, you do a tremendous job, and you know, thank you for for what you do for Central Coast sport in promoting it, not just rugby league but every sport, um, mate. You do a great job. Dave Fairley on the Perfect Ten, a legend on and off the field, and a great mate for a couple of decades. Such a pleasure spending time talking about his illustrious career. Thanks again also to our naming rights partner, Robson Civil Projects. Greg Ferguson, Resources Manager from Robson Civil, has dropped in. Fergie, how are you enjoying the Perfect Ten and our state-of-the-art studios? Fantastic show. Listen to it all the time. I happened to actually play against Dave Fairley when I was going to school at Henry Kendall. He was an intimidating character. You've been with the company since 1998. How would you describe Robson Civil in just a couple of words? Uh, Family-orientated close-knit community and a great company to work for. Greg Ferguson, Resources Manager with our new naming rights partner, Robson Civil Projects, a legendary business on the Central Coast, Sydney and Newcastle for over 50 years. Next up on The Perfect Ten, a young lady who I believe could become one of the greatest players in history, Kira Dibb, who made a stunning debut for the Gillaroos at 5'8 in 2019. And just before we go... We dedicate this episode to the legendary Noel Kelly, the man named at hooker in the team of the century alongside Arthur Beetson and Duncan Hall in the front row. He played over 100 times for the Mighty Magpies and represented Australia on 25 occasions between 1959 and 1968. He was also one of my dad's all-time favourite players. Dad described Ned Kelly in three words. Tough, tough, tough. Rest in peace, Noel Kelly. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next time. The Perfect Ten.